A financial exchange is an operationally intensive business. You have customers making a high volume of transactions, your service has to be low latency and highly available, and you're dealing with a lot of money. A cryptocurrency exchange has all of the complexity of a typical financial exchange and then some additional complexity. Shapeshift is a cryptocurrency exchange that allows users to buy and sell digital assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and lots of other currencies. Shapeshift also has a set of tools and APIs that allow developers to build higher-level applications that transact in cryptocurrencies. Shapeshift's CEO is an early cryptocurrency entrepreneur named Eric Voorhees, who will appear on the show in a near-future episode. Today's guest is John, the COO of Shapeshift. He handles the operations of the company. He prefers not to use his last name because Shapeshift is particularly sensitive to social engineering attacks. We will get into why that is in this episode. We'll explore lots of other topics too. How to scale a cryptocurrency exchange, the products that Shapeshift offers, and some of the near-death experiences that Shapeshift has had. After all, it is a startup, and every startup has moments where it seems like the company will die. Meetups for Software Engineering Daily are being planned. If you want to attend one, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup and sign up for notifications. We've got one coming up at Datadog in New York in March, as well as HubSpot in Boston. And then in April, I will be at Telesign in L.A., and if you're looking for all 700-plus episodes of Software Engineering Daily, you can check out our apps on the iOS and Android App Store. We've got tons of episodes on blockchains, business, distributed systems, lots of other topics. And if you want to become a paid subscriber to Software Engineering Daily, you can hear all of our episodes without advertisements. You can subscribe at softwaredaily.com. And all of the code for our apps is open source. If you're looking for an open source community to be a part of, come check it out at github.com slash software engineering daily. John is the COO of Shapeshift, and he's joining us to discuss cryptocurrencies and running a cryptocurrency exchange. We've just let off the conversation with one of the peculiarities of being part of a cryptocurrency exchange, which is that security policy around trying to, I guess, be cagey with identities. And that's to avoid... What's the purpose of that? Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, first, Jeff, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it and chance to talk to you a bit. Yeah. So starting with that, uh, Shapeshift has a policy regarding the security of our employees where we just, we try not, you know, the general policy, there's there's more specifics to it that I can't go into, but the general policy is not to give out more information than necessary. And a lot of times that includes like, you know, whether or not our employees post themselves on LinkedIn, whether or not we give out last names, things like that. It's just trying to control the flow of information so that some of the more nefarious hackers and such in the industry who might want to do us harm or try to steal some of the funds that we have or things like that don't have easy social engineering points that they can just grasp onto and then, you know, try to use that information to get to another piece of information, et cetera, because that's usually how it works. They get one thing and then they use that to get something else to get something else until they've found someone vulnerable or someone they think they can exploit. So the less of that information we put out there in general from our security perspective, we think that's better for the whole organization. And I know there's a lot of other exchanges that take kind of similar mindsets. Hmm. So I've worked at some places that have some high security 
protocols, but I've never had to do anything like that. Of course, so like I worked at Amazon and they have all kinds of security protocols, but it's, it's just, again, not anything close to that. Is it the nature of the fact that it is a cryptocurrency exchange and it's a you can operate with that cryptocurrency exchange in an anonymous fashion? There are so many security vulnerabilities inherent in the system that you're running. Is that why you just have to take an extra degree of security? Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. A lot of it is just what's inherent to the industry, right? So there's so many things that people who run these exchanges have to deal with. And we're a little unique in that case. You know, a lot of these exchanges are holding large amounts of customer funds, you know, often billions and billions of US dollars worth of these various assets. And that's a big target, right? I mean, where we're dealing with what are essentially irreversible crypto assets that when you send them, like there's not an easy way to get them back. So if a hacker or someone who's nefarious either gains access or even more likely just has enough information to do like a spear phishing attack, for example, that can be more than enough for them to make off with, you know, millions of dollars in value that you'll never see again. And so as a result, we have to take this stuff very, very seriously. In Shapeshift's case, we're fortunate in that we do not hold customer funds. And so as a result, we're not sitting on, you know, billions of dollars of customer assets or anything. But we still do have a number of our own assets and a lot of those similar problems. Explain what Shapeshift does for people who are totally unfamiliar to this. Yeah. So Shapeshift is kind of a a platform that allows both users and machines, you know, people and machines or both users of our product to easily and frictionlessly buy and sell various digital assets. And specifically to do that without any use of fiat or traditional currency. It's all done just from one digital asset to another digital asset. So in Shapeshift's case, we're actually, you know, holding an inventory of these various things, very much like a, you know, a storefront might hold an, you know, a grocery store might hold an inventory of various items. And we kind of buy and sell those with either, you know, a person or a machine interacting with our API that wants to deal with those. Now, traditionally, a exchange like, well, I'm thinking E-Trade, but E-Trade is not really an exchange, I don't think. It's more like kind of an exchange provider. But in these kinds of systems, the traditional systems where people are trading, there are notions of accounts that are managed by companies. And I think Shapeshift is kind of interesting because you don't have a notion of accounts, right? You have you facilitate transactions between people's wallets that are decentralized abstractions. Is that right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. When we first built Shapeshift, the goal was always to try to allow the exchange of these various digital assets or the the buying and selling of them more accurately to be done very transparently and to be done very frictionlessly. And part of that lack of friction, or even more important, safely, And part of that lack of friction and safety that, in our opinion, for a lot of these transactions, you know, user accounts and that type of information is just kind of unnecessary. It doesn't add anything to it. We end up holding a bunch of data about the user that they may not want if that data becomes a treasure trove for, again, you know, hackers and bad actors to try to go after. So a lot of it is just concerned with customer safety. And we don't want to have to take information that we think just endangers people or endangers customers. And I think... A great example of this, and we've, we've kind of seen this over various headlines of the last number of years since we started Shapeshift, but the one that's still relatively fresh in everyone's mind was the Equifax incident, 
how much better would it be if Equifax didn't hadn't been holding everybody's data a lot of times even without their knowledge and just you know created this treasure trove of information for someone to go after when you when our kind of philosophy is whenever you have that information it's only a matter of time until it leaks out or gets attacked somehow and oh, the biggest tech companies and the governments of the world can't keep this information safe so we think the best way to keep users safe is to not have that information in the first place if we don't need it when someone submits an order to shapeshift so for example let's say i want to convert a bitcoin into the equivalent number of litecoin or the equivalent number of ethereum what do i need to do in order to initiate that transaction as a user yeah good question so it's pretty simple the way we've set it up Essentially, all you have to do, there's there's a couple ways you can use the system, but at its most basic level, all you have to do is tell us the two assets that you're looking to convert between. So, you know, you tell us that you have Bitcoin and you want Ethereum, for example, and then we give you a Bitcoin address to send to from your own wallet. And as soon as we detect that you've sent that Bitcoin transaction, we figure out what those current rates are and we convert it and we send you your Ethereum. As soon as we are sure that you've sent it correctly and it's confirmed on the network, it gets sent out immediately to you so that we're, it's never really in transition for very long. Mm-hmm. And like any sort of exchange, you have buy orders and sell orders coming in for any particular currency. You have people that are looking to sell their Bitcoin. At the same time, you have other people that are looking to buy Bitcoin or exchange it. And more appropriately, I should say, somebody is willing to exchange Bitcoin for another currency, and another person is willing to exchange a different currency for Bitcoin. And in the best case, you would be able to match those two buy and sell orders. That's, you know, exchanges are often doing this internal matching process, which works out really well, because then you just take a fee, and you can take a fee from both sides, and it's a very good business for you. But in the event that you happen to not have people that are matched at the same time, or in the event that you yourself do not have uh, the liquid assets available, in order to service that request, you might have to go out to a different exchange and make a purchase of one of those currencies in order to satisfy the user's request. So in, in that case, Shapeshift is an abstraction over other exchanges as well as its own internal matching system and liquidity. Is that an accurate representation of what the company does? Yeah, you're close in some of those aspects. We definitely in some ways are that kind of abstraction layer and that we make it much easier than having to go to a traditional, you know, centralized order book exchange to figure out if you can post an order that will match with the seller and things like that. So in Shapeshift's case, we're not really exactly doing that type of matching you described. You don't put up a, a limit order or say, I want to buy this at this price on Shapeshift. Instead, we're just sourcing those prices from the exchanges all the time. And we say, here's the best price we can find right now. And you decide if you want to take that price or leave it. It's more like doing a market order where you just you decide you want to do this. And then we have the inventory on hand. So we send your order out right away. And you don't have to think about, is this going to match or is or do I have to wait a period of time or anything like that? You just have to think, okay, I want this asset and I want that asset. Here's the rate. I'm good with that rate. Great. And then it all gets done. And you're right that at times we have to source from other exchanges to manage our liquidity and inventory. But that's kind of one of the magic aspects of Shapeshift is a lot of the stuff we're doing behind the scenes to make sure that we always have enough liquidity 
and that we're constantly, you know, moving funds back and forth between our own wallets and exchanges that we use to make sure that with whatever's happening, we have the liquidity to meet the demand. Mm -hmm. You want to have your own liquidity on hand, but at the same time, you want to quote the prices of other exchanges. So it's not like you are making your own subjective assessment of the quote to offer to the user, although mm-hmm. you could do that if maybe you do that sometimes, but generally you are pinging a bunch of different exchanges and you're deriving a quote from the other exchanges. Correct. We're not doing price discovery on our own. You know, price discovery is best suited for one of those more traditional limit order exchanges because that's, you know, just like any other market, that's how we find what the current price of something. You know, one person's willing to buy at this price, one person's willing to sell at this price, and when they eventually match, they do that. And there's lots of crypto exchanges out there that do that pretty well. So we're not trying to necessarily be exactly in that sphere. Our service is a bit different. It's more about trying to make this easy, fast, and safe for the users involved. And a lot of those users, you know, their eyes just glaze over when they see something like an order book. They have no idea what they're looking at. It's confusing. Mm. We try to make this much simpler and easier. You know, here's a rate for to go from this asset to this asset. You just send it here and you get it there. And you don't have to think about it much more than that. Fascinating. But internally, do you view it as some system of of price discovery? Because internally, you could be looking at all the different exchanges and you could say, well, you know, this one has a higher price and we've got a surplus internally of this kind of currency. Well, or maybe we have a paucity of this kind of currency. So maybe we should just quote a higher price from a different exchange. Or do you always defer to the lowest price that you find among the set of exchanges? Yeah, good question. We definitely could do those type of things. And we've explored those type of things that you just mentioned. But really, our goal is generally to try to get the consumer the best price we can at any given moment. You know, we feel like it's better to build the business by trying to make the experience the best for our users and our partners, of which a lot of our volume comes from, and show them the best price that we can find at that moment and not necessarily try to jack it up in any certain way or make it higher for our own benefit. You know, we'd we'd rather just source them what we think is the best price at that time. I think back to your question regarding price discovery, I think I wouldn't call Shapeshift a mechanism for price discovery, but I think Shapeshift as a whole contributes a lot to the price discovery of the ecosystem just by the fact that our orders do impact the exchanges. And as a result, that's going to adjust the prices as our orders go through them. Interesting. And if what you're saying is true, then your requests drive down the price. Because if you're typically deferring to the lower priced purchase price of an exchange, then you're probably driving down prices overall. Yeah, I'm not sure if that means we're driving down price. It depends on the markets. You know, sometimes the market's just going one way. <laughs> and we see this all the time, you know, like Ethereum or Bitcoin is just rising like crazy in some some types of market scenarios and everyone wants to buy and they want to speculate as to, you know, maybe which one of these they think is going to be higher a few moments from now and things like that. That drives a lot of that action sometimes upwards. So I wouldn't say it necessarily moves price down. I would say that Shapeshift in many ways, because we interact with multiple exchanges, kind of forces like a version of arbitrage almost, where it it won't necessarily force the price down, but it will eventually force exchange prices together given enough volume. 
Right. And my wording there was pretty bad because uh, when I say it's driving the price or something down, these are all like relative quotes and it does it like a driving down one thing just means something else is being driven up. Well, yeah, then that's interesting. So it sounds like basically what Shapeshift serves to do is to thin the margins between different or yeah, thin the arbitrages between different currencies. Yeah. Because if you can sweep the market, if you can sweep all the different exchanges and you can just choose what looks to you to be the most efficient price. That seems to be what the agency of, of Shapeshift is all about is let's find more market efficiency. And then also like looking at Shapeshift's products, you know, what you said about kind of trying to drive customer trust and customer value uh, that kind of resonates because it looks like you're working on a lot of ways that things like e-commerce companies could build in plugins and th- and things like that. Looks like you're working on the upsells and working on the upsells. I would say is predicated on having the lower level aspects of your business working really smoothly and and getting the customer a great deal of trust and a great deal of value. Yeah, I mean, I think that puts it well. When Shapeshift started, the goal was always just to make things easier. Make the, make the, you know, especially in the early days of crypto back when we started four years ago and even before that, there was a lot of really terrible user experience in the space. It's still not the best compared to a lot of other industries and it's gotten better. And I think a lot of that has to do with the roots of all of this really being, you know, a lot of very technical and engineering minded people don't always make the best for design and user experience level things when something needs to become more mainstream as crypto's starting to inch closer to. And I think Shapeshift, we really always wanted to focus on that UX and just create tools and various products that make the ecosystem and cryptocurrency easier to use. That's always been our goal. Can you tell me a little bit about integrating with those other exchanges? Like when you ping an exchange you know, does it tell you how much liquidity is on that exchange? And like, how many exchanges do you do you have to integrate with? And do you have some measurement of trust of the different exchanges? Because like, maybe you ping one, and then you put in a market order, and it looks like they, they may have, you know, screwed you over or, or something, you know, when you analyze it in retrospect, like, oh, well, they gave us, you know, they gave us one small lot at that that price that they had quoted us, but then they jacked up the price really quickly, and and it feels like we're getting cheated here. Just tell me about the interaction between these different exchanges. Good question. They so the various exchanges that we work with, and we're always kind of adjusting this list. It kind of depends, like who actually has the volume and what's popular on the market at any given time. So we try to plug into as many of the major exchanges that are doing volume as we can, at least for the asset pairs that we use and make sure that we're ready to use those at any given time. It's easy to to think that, you know, I see a lot of FUD and conspiracies get thrown around online of people thinking exchanges are screwing them or doing nefarious things in various ways. As someone who's, you know, operating a company in this space, I have a lot of sympathy against those type of arguments because I know that people just tend to jump to whatever whatever they want when they see things like that. And it's usually not the case. So in our case, like when we pull an, a- an API from an exchange, and it will differ a little bit from exchange to exchange, we're just pulling like the state of the order book. We're trying to figure out, you know, for this asset, what are the various orders on that book? What kind of price can we derive from those orders? And how long do we think those orders are going to be on that book? And if they've changed since we last looked at it, we need to update it again. I don't feel like we usually see feel like we're getting cheated or anything by an exchange, because it's usually the users on the exchange are setting the price, not the exchange itself. Right, because it's it's people buying and selling that 
actually forms that market price. Now, there have certainly been times when, you know, maybe some things have happened on various exchanges or bugs have happened. And in those cases, we have to get in contact with the exchange operators and just work things out. But I've never really seen a time where we couldn't just work things out other than exchanges that have actually collapsed. You know, that's the biggest risk in the whole market. And one of the reasons people like to use something like Shapeshift rather than one of these exchanges is at any given time, if an exchange is holding your keys and they disappear, there's very little you can do. So we really at Shapeshift try to encourage users to hold their own keys and we don't ever want to hold their keys exactly for that reason. And that's that's the real risk more than messing with you on the price or something like that. Right. Okay. So this is the risk of a exchange also functioning as a bank, which is problematic because if the exchange blows up for some reason, either it takes too much risk or it has some sort of bug where you know it, it ends up sending out tons and tons of, of money and is not... T- or in the crypto space, kind of back to our original point, you know, more than likely the, the reason most of these exchanges have been knocked over is they got hacked. <laughs> right, certainly. I mean, yeah, you, you can just get hacked... Or you can just you can have like a night capital type of event where you you know maybe you've got some automated system that goes haywire you know you ship a bug and it just ends up trading out all the assets and then it's like oh well we've got all these customer assets that you know maybe they were they were margining against those customer assets and then they end up like claiming the assets or something I yeah I mean I think hacking but hacking like you said is probably the the biggest issue at least has been historically <laughs> historically yes yes historically so tell me about support because you know you've got a system where basically people don't need to have accounts they just make a transaction they put in the wallets you know the well i guess they just have to put in their you know the wallet that they are sending money from as well as the money the wallet that they want money sent to that's really all they have to input but if there's some kind of bug that occurs, they need to be able to contact support. And I guess they would need to be able to tell support what happened. And in a typical support system, you can just say, oh, yeah, my login is this, my birthday is this. And so how do you handle support tickets? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you would think it would be harder for us in many ways. But Shapeshift has, throughout its history, been known to have one of the better support systems and support teams in the whole industry. And One of the reasons for that is that everything we do is visible and transparent. It's all on chain of some various blockchain. So even if we don't have an account, all we need is for a user to, you know, point us at the transaction on the blockchain and then we can track out down what's going on and figure out, you know, fixing it for them. We have a good support, you know, a growing support team and particularly at the end of last year when volumes were growing across the industry, pretty much every crypto exchange in the space was dealing with just scaling their support teams. They just couldn't keep up, and we were no different at that time. But, I mean, at this point, we're very caught up, and it's really never been an issue for us. In fact, it actually makes support easier because anytime a user contacts us, we just have to figure out what happened on chain, and we can trace it back, and there's nothing, you can't hide anything on a public blockchain. It's all right there, so we can figure it out every single time, pretty much. That's true. That is actually, you have a super simple API where people are just sending... Uh, transactions to a wallet that is owned by Shapeshift. And so when they point to a transaction and say, hey, I was trying to send money to Shapeshift, can you like inspect that? It's very, I guess it's very well defined. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that doesn't seem problematic after, after all. Have there been any vulnerabilities where like, you know, you could have a support system where 
if you have a malicious support person, maybe they could conspire with outside actors to scam Shapeshift. Like if you accidentally hired somebody who is just very greedy and I don't know, have you considered that sort of vulnerability? Absolutely. I mean, we ourselves got hacked a number of years ago. There's actually a story out there you can Google called that Eric, our CEO, wrote called The Looting of the Fox that kind of explains the whole situation that we dealt with. And it was all because of an internal actor. Internal threats are by far and large probably the biggest threat that any any crypto company faces because they're the ones that you put trust in. They're the ones who gain access to things. A lot of how we design and try to design both our support and operational systems is to try to avoid those type of things. And it's not it's not an easy process. You know, you have to trust people at certain points. You have to try to hire the right people. And then you have to try to design systems that both give them enough access to do their jobs, but also make sure they're being audited and checked and that if they were to do something wrong, it can be traced back to them. So it's that is a difficult challenge that I think every crypto company deals with, and we're no different there. But we've definitely developed some of our own processes, and we're constantly evolving that to watch out for that type of internal threat. Yeah, you've got some truly byzantine actors in the distributed system there so these kinds of support vulnerabilities uh in order to think through them do you bring in security experts or do you just are they just things that you can only learn by getting bruised a number of times or you know does it come down to tooling that you have to build how do you ensure that you are less vulnerable to inside actors? All of the above, really. <laughs> There's no one-size-fits-all solution to, to any sort of security question, in my opinion. So we look at outside people to try to help us you know, on various things, get security audits as we need them on various products. We also have a chief information security officer and security team on staff here at, at ShapeShift. And you know, that's obviously a big part of their task is trying to hunt down these various problems and keep ahead of it. And at the same time, yeah, we do need to build some of our own tools because our problems are unique. And, you know, going back to what I was saying about that looting of the Fox story that we published after our own incident, we thought that was really important because there isn't a lot of visibility into these things. A lot of companies, even traditional companies, get hacked all the time and you never hear about it because nobody wants to admit that something happened. But it's really hard to learn if nobody shares that information. So in our case, it was really important that we shared that information because we wanted to promote better practices and security around the whole space. And we wanted to show people like, here's things we did where we know we messed up and that other people can learn from so that hopefully they don't have to learn it firsthand. So we look at that information, we talk to other exchanges, and we we try to really share information collaboratively in the community so that we can combat these things. But there's there's definitely no panacea, you know, type solution that you just do this one thing and everything's great. It's a constant iteration and constantly changing. Mm. In the that event where you had an inside actor, was there legal recourse there? Were you able to go to law enforcement and say, "Hey, we got, you know, hacked by an inside actor," or does law enforcement just say, "Ah, it's a cryptocurrency company. We can't help you." Yeah. So in our case, we definitely did go to law enforcement, and we also got. We ended up getting a civil judgment against the actor, the former employee. Unfortunately, that employee basically fled and disappeared. So getting a judgment against them is not that helpful if you can't enforce it and find them and you know find something to actually take back. But the law enforcement did you know talk to us at various points. At various points, they showed interest in going after this person, but 
we've never seen the actual fruits of that labor. I mean, for all I know, there could still be some sort of investigation or case going on there, but we haven't heard any updates on it in a while. And law enforcement is not usually going to share that information with you. Have there been any moments, maybe that was one of the moments, but I mean, every startup has its moments where they're just like, oh, this we're going to die here. Like, this is going to kill our business. <laughs> Have you had any, any hair on fire moments like that where you're just like, okay, we're dead. We lose. I, I'm not even sure if I can count the number of moments to the point where like, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so hard into them where nowadays when those type of things come up, I, they don't even phase me, or even though our newer members of the staff get very phased by them. Yeah, that hack was definitely one of the biggest moments. You know, we were more importantly than losing the money we did which comparatively to some other crypto exchange hacks was not even that much. But even though it was significant for us at that stage, it was the fact that we, it brought our site, we had to rebuild our, our infrastructure. It brought our product down for like over two weeks. You know, you never know when you bring your product, you know, up an operating product like that and it goes down for that period yeah. of time. Are you going to be able to regain people's trust? Or are they still going to want to use it? Fortunately, I think, you know, because of our model, the fact that we didn't hold customer funds and the fact that no customers lost anything in our incident, that really gave us some credibility. You know, we were one of the few companies that was able to turn an incident like that into actually, you know, a positive PR event because we it kind of proved out our model. You know, there was no data for that hacker to steal from customers and there was no funds for that hacker to steal from customers. Wow. So while we were exposed to some risk, nobody else was. And so when we turned back online, we were very fortunate that our customers really still wanted to use us and still trusted us because we had just basically demonstrated our model to them, even though that wasn't the way we necessarily wanted to do it. <laughs> okay, that's really interesting. Got a collection of random questions I wanted to ask you. How do trading bots affect your business? Yeah, I mean, well, trading bots, you know, like kind of as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, there's two real main use cases for Shapeshift. It's either people themselves using it or various machines. And the trading bots would fall into that machine category. And we're totally fine with that. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily affect our business. It's just yet another, another machine that might add volume to our exchange. Mm-hmm. How does regulation affect Shapeshift today? Well, that's, that's another constantly evolving question, of course. And it honestly depends, too, on which jurisdiction you're talking about. Because Shapeshift is a very global business. We get volume in business from all over the world. And there's various jurisdictions, and those jurisdictions have a lot of different opinions, often at odds with each other about how they want to view this stuff, and it's not very clear yet. So it's something where we have a legal department, we spend a lot on legal bills trying to figure all this stuff out, figure out how do we operate our business in certain areas, and figuring out all these questions is a constant process. It's hard to say exactly how it affects us on any given day, because it, it feels like it changes every week almost, especially lately. Do you have to register yourself as an exchange? Again, it depends on the jurisdiction and who you ask and who you're getting legal advice from. Hmm. I, can't, uh, I can't necessarily comment exactly on that, on what is exactly required and what is defined <laughs> as an exchange and all these things. It's, it's a constantly evolving evolving process and is it evolving to the point where like there are places where it's just not defined at all and you're operating in some sort of gray area yeah well i think crypto as a whole has existed in you know a kind of uncertain at least an uncertain area for a number of years yeah regulators are getting people are paying more attention and regulators are starting to look at it you know sometimes to the detriment of the industry obviously you know you know one of the big achievements of the internet was that it was able to go so long without significant regulation. It really allowed a lot to develop. And we really like to see that happen in the crypto world, but we know that regulators are going to have their opinions on things and they're going to try to regulate certain things. And we have to pay attention to that and try to comply with all local laws of any jurisdiction we serve. 
So it's just something we're constantly having to reevaluate. You know, in the very early days, a number of years ago, you know, one of the first kind of states, you know, in the U.S., for example, to do anything significant was New York when they passed what's called the uh, BIT license from the New York Financial Services Department. And that was one of the clear, you know, pieces of legislation actually on the books that made it clear that what we were doing needed a license and we would have to go through this whole process and ourselves and a number of other crypto companies that saw it as way too onerous and, you know, hurting innovation decided to leave and no longer service New York. And to this day, we don't service New York as a result of that. Yes, the bit license that was promoted by somebody in government who shortly thereafter left government to start a consultancy that helped people become compliant with that policy that he had helped push into action. It was like the the prime example of regulators just playing both sides of the table. And I think, you know, for a lot of people in, in cryptocurrency, that probably just made them all the more obsessed with with kind of the maybe the the Eric Voorhees flavor of uh, let's be less regulated let's have more um, liberation and experimentation yeah I mean I think that was an important lesson to a lot of people in the crypto industry because I think you just described very well what happened and we a lot of a lot of people a lot of big you know thought leaders tried to engage with the with the creators of the bit license during all the discussions and to really try to help them guide what they were doing and show them the issues they were going to cause if they didn't change the way they were doing it and they were just kind of you know they they were kind of passively listened to and then ignored and then new york ended up passing this terrible license and even to this day it seems like it's not something any of them want and then the guy who had really spearheaded it just left and the financial services department was left dealing with this thing that none of them really wanted to deal with. And it it's just a perfect example of, you know, bad regulation that was clearly passed that benefited almost nobody, except for maybe large incumbents that wanted to stifle innovation. And that's really not good for consumers. That never leads to benefits to consumers. And to the degree that regulators want to say that they're trying to help and protect consumers, that type of thing is, is really not what's going to help. Although the efforts of the SEC, at least to cast some aspersions on ICOs and perhaps some ominous warnings that are being issued to ICOs, perhaps past and future and and shortly impending ICO participants, that stuff may be uh, positive. I mean, because like some of these ICOs are just terrible, just completely fraudulent, just completely worthless tokens that are being offered to people. Although, you know, maybe if you're somebody like Eric Voorhees, maybe you would say, well, you know, maybe this is the, uh, you know, this should be allowed because if people can't figure out for themselves what to invest in, then they shouldn't be investing. And I have no idea if Eric Voorhees ever said something like that, but I could imagine him saying something like that. Are there tokens that you do not issue or that you do not trade in? Like, well, I don't want to mention any ones, but are, are there ones that you just do not allow people to trade in or do you let people trade in whatever they want to? Well, we're very, you know, we're, this is again, a large part of what our legal department does is trying to figure out which of these assets, you know, are some sort of high risk of being considered securities and which aren't. We're, we're trying very hard to not list anything that we think may be too close to that line of being potentially considered a security. So that is something we're very cognizant of. And anything listed on Shapeshift is something that we're trying very much 
based on our legal advice to put up there and be kosher with that stuff. Sorry, you cannot list securities or you want to list? Oh, absolutely not. Okay. We have not and will never list something that explicitly is recognized to be a security. The things that we're trying to trade and we think are very important is that there's lots of type of digital assets in this space. And a lot of them really don't fit that traditional definition. And I think it's very close to how, you know, like the traditional, when Bitcoin first came out of the scene, everyone wanted to call it just a currency. And that really kind of poisoned the well a little bit because it it shaped people's perspectives in a way that they didn't fully understand the technology and what was going on. And Bitcoin is far more than just a currency. You know, it's a currency, it's a protocol, it's a piece of software it's in many ways its own economic system. It's it's this thing that just really de- it defies the categories that had existed beforehand. In many ways, the same way that the internet defied many categories of media before it had existed. So when you have something very new like this, it's very common for everyone to try to couch it in the old terms that they understand because that's what that's the language they have to use with. But in reality, it's something new and category breaking that any language you try to apply to it is really just kind of limiting it and not appreciating it for this new thing that's really been created. And I think this applies to a lot of various types of tokens and assets in the space is that they, a lot of these just do not fit in this category of being a security. There's something totally different. I mean, obviously, you know, the SEC is going to have their opinion on that, but we have to pay very close attention to that. And other regulators, other jurisdictions will have their opinions and they're, they're not always in line with what the SEC or others think. And it's, it's kind of nobody really knows the answer to this question because they're all trying to apply old terminology to a very new thing that just breaks all these categories. I completely agree with what you said. Although you've got currencies like uh, Tron, which the white paper of Tron was copied from the IPFS white paper. You read it and it just smells like a scam. You, you, you investigate who is involved in Tron and it looks like a scam you have things like Tether, where you've got this company that is claiming to have $1 in reserve currency for every one Tether in existence, and yet they refuse to let auditors prove it. And you could make arguments that these things should not be traded because they are, at a fundamental level, fraudulent. On the other hand, you could say people want to buy these just because other people believe in them. And that's actually kind of a valid perspective. Like, maybe you should let people buy this stuff, regardless of the fundamental underpinnings. Maybe you should let people buy Dogecoin, even even though there's not much development going on, just because they think other people believe in it. Like, that should be fine. I mean, I could see arguments for either side. Do you fall convincingly on either of those sides? Like, what are the coins that should be kosher to be traded on something like Shapeshift? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, Shapeshift is not a, we do not intend to be, you know, something like a securities exchange. We're, we're trying to trade these kind of new ideas and these new type of assets. And again, you're getting into a, a discussion where we're really trying to classify exactly what these things are. And our opinion is it really is on a case by case basis. You know, there are assets that are closer to that security line and might, might, should be, maybe should be considered securities. And there are ones that we really think should not, that there's something totally different. And it's hard, other than on a case-by-case basis, to figure those things out. I mean, you even talk about something like, you know, Tether and the the issues that I know Bitfinex and the people that own that have had in terms of getting an auditor to bless it and show these things. And we know from our own experience that, you know, 
and again, this is always seen differently from the outside, but as a crypto company that has experience in this area, it's really hard to get an auditor to audit anything in the crypto space. Hmm. You know, it may not be, I'm not saying I know anything about that particular situation because I don't, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if based on my experience, it has nothing to do with them not wanting to get the audit as much with the auditor basically wanting a bunch of things that are impossible for a crypto exchange to show because they don't really understand what they're auditing yet. It's not like auditors have tons of experience auditing crypto companies. They, there's a lot of nuances that they just don't understand. And we've, we've seen that even in our own experience, trying to get ourselves audited for our investors and various financial purposes. And it's a long and arduous process, and it's not easy. A lot of that issue might just be that people don't understand these things. And I, I see that all the time. So when it comes to things like things that are clearly scams and fraudulent, you know, obviously we're against that. We don't want to list things that are clearly scams or fraudulent. We don't want to promote those type of things. They're absolutely going to exist in any sort of free market economy, but we don't think that's the majority of the use cases. And we don't think that that's in and of itself. It shouldn't mean that the whole industry is negative because of that or something like that. It just means that there are some bad actors in the space and we have to make sure to promote, to talk about that and, and not support those type of bad actors. And hopefully, you know, agencies like the SEC will really focus on those who are doing things that are you know, purely fraudulent and things like that. That's the type of thing they should be doing. Fascinating. So how do you assemble a team that can make these kinds of assessments? Do you just like bring together the best lawyers and accountants and securities professionals? Like, how are you auditing these things? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question. I mean, how do you hire people with experience in a space when the space is so new and on the frontier? And You know, you try to find things that are analogous. You try to find people who have really highly respected and very, you know, smart and powerful individuals who can come and help you. And that's really what we're looking for when we build the space. And in our case, you know, as a crypto company, a lot of what we're building is just, you know, on the engineering side. So we're, we're trying to find, you know, the best and brightest engineers to help us build the future more or less because so much of what we're building is just stuff that has never existed before category breaking. Like we've been talking about, it's not something where you have an easy roadmap of you can easily get your business from A to B in this way. It's, it's something totally new and different. Hmm. Is there any interesting compensation strategies you use to get good engineers? Like, I, cause it, it seems like uh, the war for talent in cryptocurrency is like the war for talent in normal tech, but like taken to a, take it to a higher degree because it's super specialized. And a lot of the people that do have the skills are already rich. Yeah, that is actually a very good point. And I've heard from more than one other crypto, you know, CEO or COO that they've had issues with retaining employees because their employees got into Bitcoin really early and just got too rich and they didn't want to work anymore. That is a non unique problem in the industry that you, you see pop up sometimes. And it is it is a very, very competitive. There's only so much talent out there. And you have to find ways to either take people who aren't in the space and get them up to speed on the nuances of the space, or find those kind of people that already have the skills you need who are already, you know, up to speed in the space, and they're few and far between. So there's, there's no silver bullet to that problem. We just we have to try real hard. And we have to train our people and try to find the best that we can and bring them in. I wouldn't say there's any necessarily super unique compensation strategies we're using. We're, we're exploring a lot of things other tech startups would do, you know, like finding ways to do, you know, equity plans and ways to get them interested and things like that. And we, we've explored, we've talked about exploring ideas like profit sharing and such, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we would like to do more things like that. So we're certainly always evaluating that, trying to find the best way to motivate them. But a lot of it is just pretty standard. I mean, honestly, you know, the, the best recruitment, for shapeshift and other crypto companies is just that 
a lot of the people who join us really want to be in the space. You know, a lot of we, we get a lot of people who actually come to Shapeshift and one of our kind of cultural things is a lot of people take actually take pay cuts to come work for us because they were working at some other job that they thought, you know, they have a lot of skill, but it's some big corporation and they don't feel like they're contributing in the way and they really want to be actually in the blockchain space and crypto. And Shapeshift's a chance for them to do that and they get really excited about what we're doing and they want to come on board. I think people like that that take a pay cut, oftentimes they're doing that because of the charisma of the CEO, which I think in this case, Eric Voorhees is a is a charismatic guy. I've only watched some YouTube videos of him, heard some podcast interviews, and, and then I kind of like looked into his background a little bit. At He's been posting in online forums for like nine or 10 years about this kind of stuff. Like his vision for an economic system that is... I think I don't know. Some people would describe it as crypto and anarchic, but I think that's that that has a pejorative flavor to it that I don't think is is you know aligns well with who he is. I mean, it w- how would you describe him and his political beliefs, and and do you align with them? Yeah, I mean, there Eric is great. He has said a lot of things publicly, and a lot of people get impressions of that way. But at his heart, Eric is just a very smart, humble, and vision and visionary person. Like he he really does see things and intuits things in the industry that I don't think a lot of other people do. And he's, he's genuinely just like kind and really cares about the people that work with him and the things that he's doing and is so passionate about it. And I do think that permeates out to, you know, potential interviewees and other people who work in the company that they really appreciate that about him. And he's one of the few people, and I've met a lot of people in the space where, you know, you see the way they talk in public and then you get them private and they're almost like a totally different person. The person that Eric puts out publicly is himself. It's, he's really not all that different. He, he's that thoughtful. He's that kind in person. It's it's been an absolute pleasure to work with him for the last four years. So I don't, you know, at times there are parts of his politics that I very much agree with, and then there's times that I disagree with him. And he's, you know, someone who's he's not trying to get everyone over to his point of view necessarily. He he wants a discussion of ideas and for the best one to win out. And he's totally fine if you disagree with him if you back up your arguments. So I've always very much appreciated that about him and my relationship with him. Okay, I, I know we're short on time here, but I'm so fascinated by this company. Can you tell me a little bit about product development and the roadmap slash the goals? What's the big vision of where Shapeshift is going? Yeah, and that that, that itself seems to change a good bit too. But the big vision is to try to kind of stick, you know, stick to our core philosophies of creating products that are easy to use, that add value to the space, that are trustless as much as possible, that don't require people to give us their private keys or become custodians of, and to really kind of proliferate those type of products in the industry that we think are useful. So the current Shapeshift product has been the main driver of that, but we have a couple other ones out there now. We have a Prism, uh, a product in closed Breda called Prism. That is another kind of trustless way to create digital portfolios of digital assets and do that in a way um, on, via an Ethereum smart contract that we think is really cool. We have another product just for market data and act, you know stuff like that called CoinCap. And we recently, last year, um, acquired the hardware wallet maker KeepKey. And you know, so now we're also putting those type of things out. And they all kind of fit this philosophy of not trying to take hold of customer funds, trying to make them easy to use, and allowing them to have some sort of this trustless experience having to do with converting one digital asset into another. We have a number of other products, probably about three in the pipeline right now that I cannot speak of 
unfortunately, because they're not far enough along. But we hope over the next year to be unveiling a number of those and to kind of just keep innovating. You know, we, we're, we're not a company that's trying to sit back on what we've built and just iterate, iterate on just that. We really want to keep building new, new products and things that we think people will want. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. And I hope to cover those secretive products at some point in the future. I'd be happy to come back on when that happens. Okay, John. Well, great talking to you. Yeah, you too, Jeff. Thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Wow.